All right, people, here we go. And uh, welcome to Swing Thoughts. Hey, Swing Thoughts, people. Uh, it's another episode of this uh, mental performance golf nerdapalooza brought to you by TaylorMade Adidas, the number one driver in golf. TaylorMade, people. Uh, I got to tell you, as we get the show started today, I had an opportunity to hit a new TaylorMade golf club. And uh, co-host Tim O'Connor just took delivery of his tailor-made stuff. And he's freaking out because everything's going too far. Uh, Tim O'Connor on the phone today. A rare... Uh, we're changing things up. The nothing is uh, the same. Golf is like that. And so is our show. Tim's on his way uh, away for the weekend and decided we would uh, do the show like this. It'll Hi, Tim. Hey, good morning. Howard, how are you? Excellent, excellent. Tim O'Connor, of course, the mental performance coach at Glen Abbey's uh, Golf Academy and an award-winning writer and uh, buddy of mine, mental performance coach for a lot of good players, and uh, got some new clients at O'ConnorGolf.ca. And coming very soon, the Swing Thoughts uh, Facebook page will be live. We took a big step this week. We actually got it established. We've, I've invited some people to uh, like the page, and we would invite you to do the same. It's at Swing Thoughts on Facebook. Go check it out, and we'll be soon populated with all sorts of golf uh, nonsense. Hey, talk to me about the new clubs. You were freaking out. Oh, man. Um, first off, the, the M1 is uh, it's beauty, man. It's just like you were talking about. Uh, it hits it forever uh for example like my usual shot's a, a draw and i have kind of stayed away from the fade although where i play at blue springs a lot of fades off tees but i didn't want to hit a fade because i'd give up at 20 20 yards or so and right. not with the m1 man i'm belting it out there and it's just really nice moving it both ways uh hitting it farther whatever shape uh it's a beauty, and with no exaggeration, I have never seen this kind of increase in, in yardage with a, with a new club in the bag. It's everything that uh, people have been talking about. And, and you know what? It's not just that new driver uh, smell. You know, <laughs> it's not just that. You know, because sometimes you, you take a driver out to demo it or something, and it's got that new driver vibe, and you just hit it longer because it's something different. I, I mean, people have been saying this about the M1 and the TaylorMade products, um, but it's interesting to hear you, because you hit it pretty good anyway, but what I found about the M1, and I'm going to tell you about another club I tried out yesterday, is the ball just seems to jump off the face. And for me, it's not so much my better shots, although a couple times I've hit drives recently that I'm like, what? I'm too old to hit it that far. But it's the, it's the misses. It's when you miss it and it still goes like 245 or 250. You're like, what? I just hit that on the grip. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you still got a playable shot and in. Still, it's yeah, not you're like, still it's out not there like somewhere. You go from, you know, go from hitting like seven iron to four iron or something. You know, you still got it. You know, you, you still got a nice, easy club in. Uh, I don't know that there's been. Uh, 
this kind of a change or reaction, maybe since I talked with somebody on Sunday, maybe since the Callaway uh, Big Bertha first came in back in the, was that like late 80s or 90s? I think it was 90s. But uh, really, I don't know that a club's made that kind of an impact in a long time. You know, that's a really good point. And again, for our listeners who are like us, kind of golf nerds, I remember when that driver came out, there wasn't anyone I knew that didn't have a great big Bertha. It was just the thing. And then the three-wood went long. Well, the M1 and the M2 drivers are exactly like that. And I was at uh, TaylorMade uh, Golf, the Performance Center in Woodbridge yesterday, uh, picking up something, and my buddy Stu Bannington said, oh, hey, we got something for you to try. And he let me take out the M2 three-wood. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, the first couple times I hit it, I went, that's ridiculous. The, there's something they've done to the face. I don't know if it's magic or it's voodoo, but I hit a couple three-woods yesterday that were as long as my old driver. I'm not even kidding you. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. Now, I'm going with the mystical side of things, too. Like I, I thought they kind of maxed out on the uh, on the core thing and the max that it, you know, reflects or genuflex or something, and titanium. Uh, so I think it's uh, magic and, and spirituality. I, I, think I do. Like, I think it's just like a Harry Potter type of thing. It is. Anyway, it is. Uh, this is all by way of saying that Timmy's got his new clubs. Uh, we're both playing TaylorMade product and uh, couldn't be uh, more excited. And let's not forget those PSI irons. Yeah, man. I mean, holy crap. I mean, I picked up 10 to 12 yards. Are you on serious? Each, on each iron. It's like, really. And they feel, and I like the feel of them. The wedges have a great head weight. Um, I think part of it, too, is I went back from a composite graphite uh, steel to pure steel. Yeah. And even at my advanced age. Yes, sir. Um, it just feels solid and goes well. So, so I can't resist. So you picked up, uh, you know, 10 or 12 yards in your iron. So now you're hitting your, your 7 iron about, what, 140? <laughs> I, One, it, 145? It never stops. It never stops. All know, right. Um, Tim O'Connor and I would like to, our, our guest coming up later on the program is, uh, he's not a mental performance uh, guru. He's not a golf teacher, but it's a very interesting story on the show today of uh, a friend of mine, a guy I, I play at the same golf club as, as him, and, and he's got an interesting story, having gone from professional tennis to being a very good amateur golfer, and we're going to find out how the inner game of tennis relates to the inner game of golf and how he made that transition, so in a few minutes, Al Trivet will be our guest, but first, uh, let's just uh, talk about some of the things that are actually going on. First of all, we didn't do a show, brand new show last week. We let that last show run a little extra. We had uh, some uh, conflicts. And the day we're recording this, Thursday, June 2nd, the big news in Canadian golf is Graham Dillette has withdrawn from the Memorial Golf Tournament. Interestingly enough, the, uh, they honor a different player every year, and this year's honoree is Johnny Miller who has had his own troubles with short game yips and the putting yips. And Graham Dillette has announced that he is withdrawing from the tournament because he's got the chipping yips. Although he's not, did, did, did he, I didn't see in his tweet, it was in his tweet, he said, I think he said anxiety over the short game. He didn't use the Y word that, was, that rhymes with tip. Okay. That <laughs> he said, I'm dealing with incredible anxiety while chipping slash pitching right now. It's not fun, period. I needed to withdraw to get it sorted out and get back ASAP. So he didn't use the word, 
But, you know, semantics aside, I, what's your reaction to that? I was pretty shocked myself. Well, honestly, I wasn't surprised. I mean, he's struggled with that part of the game. He's regarded as one of the best ball strikers on the PGA Tour. Um, we saw that in the President's Cup a few years ago. A really fiery competitor. Um, the beard aside, which I can't stand. I don't know. I think yeah, I'm going... with you on that. I wish the beard would, 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 would withdraw from his face. Yeah, I know. Maybe Joe Thornton, you know, maybe he's going to shave it to see if he gets some magic in that Penn series. But, um no, the short game has been what's been holding him back for a while, and and perhaps this is just something that's kind of creeped into his noggin, and he's just the the fear of what's going on has just um, you know worked its way into just creating more anxiety. So yeah, he hasn't used the word yip, but that you know I on Twitter there I was just seeing all kinds of folks are just saying, well, he ain't saying it, but that's highly likely what it is. Well, I don't understand why that's even like whether they call it whether you want to call it the yips or not. Dealing with anxiety while chipping or pitching it doesn't matter what it's the name of it. But we've all, you know, I think we can all relate to it. So moving on from what he's calling it, let me ask you this question: Have you ever had uh, anxiety over chipping and pitching? Hundred percent. I think if you're a golfer, you have. Yeah. Because it. The problem with the short game is that it looks kind of simple in many ways, and, and it is. It's just like the smallest part of the swing just at the bottom of the arc. But we attach so much significance to it. You know, are we going to look stupid? Uh, you know, and, of course, you feel silly with a chip because you could chunk it. You know, you hit it like two feet or you skull it over the green. You know, the simple shot. It really is quite simple. Uh, suddenly, you, you look foolish. So there's all kinds of anxiety about how you're going to perform. Are you going to get it? Are you going to get it close? Are you going to look stupid? Same with putting. You know, particularly a short putt. Um, we invest meaning into it, and and when we're focused on result, there's anxiety and fear, and that breeds tension. And you know, your normal athleticism just doesn't happen. Uh, because largely you're in the future and you're apprehensive. So, you know, it's interesting thinking about um, being a kid golfer. While you were saying that, oh. um, most children, I, I just I remember being a teenager and getting up and, you know, I was whether it was a you know a bump and run or you had to flop it over something or hit a bunker shot. I, I just it just never occurred to you. I think as you're growing up through the game that this isn't anything but easy and fun and, you know, just sort of instinctive. It isn't until you, I think, have played the game. And I, the reason I say this is Nicholas, you know, has, has went through some troubles with his pitching. You know, they, in this article I'm reading, you know, Lauren Rubenstein talks about a time when Nicholas used to putt around bunkers because he was so nervous yep. about chipping over them. Um, I think as you grow in the game, grow older, and all of a sudden you've hit the odd goofy shot and sculled the odd one over the green that's when anxiety and future how did you put it you know you're thinking about the results because to me it never it never manifested itself until i was in my late 40s or 50s where once in a while you'd be like what just happened there because it's almost like it it's like your small muscles got to the bottom of your your little tiny swing arc and they just twitched yeah, yeah. And, well, and for most of us, it, we've all experienced it. And if you're, if you're listening, you say you haven't. You're lying to yourself. We've all done it, and it's sort of embarrassing and a bit humiliating. But a lot of us kind of will get through it where we all know guys. 
Uh, I think Al and I know a few people. I know one in particular that is having a horrible time with it, but I don't think wants to actually cop to the fact that, hey, this is an issue. Yeah, oh, he's in, he's in uh, Yip Denial. Possibly, and it's not like Shank Denial. I, by the way, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I, you are now forbidden from uh, posting the show's the synopsis of Howard's in Shank Denial. I had one possible Hazel-oriented... Anyway, let's talk about... It's um, still going on. I, you know, we need to do a session, Howard. You yeah, know, whatever. Talk about your mother. Well, and well, Let's talk... Know, so somebody, listening, somebody listening is going through some anxiety, chipping and pitching. What does your mental coach recommend for maybe something that they go out this weekend, they're not comfortable with certain shots? What do you recommend? If you're playing the game, I mean, what, if you're having trouble with parts of your game, uh, the easiest thing is don't play. Just just practice, have fun, play games in which you have, um, you know, consequence. You just don't don't hit chips. Try and play game like that par eighteen game. Do things like that. But if you have to play, play the easiest shot. Play the shot you know you can hit. You've hit before. Um, if it's a shot you're not having. It you're struggling with, um, just don't hit those shots if you can. Like do like Nicholas, just putt. You putt out of a bunker. There's no there's no shame in that. You just do what you have to do so you can have fun. Make the game as natural and fun as you can. I think that's a great point, by the way. You know, uh, whether it's a, a bunker shot that makes you nervous or, you know, oftentimes we've talked about this on the show, and I talk about it in my seminars. Um, I just like saying that. Um, you know what I'll do? Sometimes? Sounds good to me. It does. Sometimes a decision to try an easier shot actually lowers your anxiety level. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're trying to nip a shot off a tight lie to a tight pin over a bunker, all of those things sort of conspire to raise your anxiety level. And sometimes, and I've done this recently in competition where I go, you know, I know I, had, I know I know I can hit this shot, but right now the smartest thing I can do is play away from the flag, you know, try and get a 10 or a 12, or as you call it, a serviceable shot. Maybe it won't be right next to the pin, but it won't. It lowers my anxiety level, and I actually pull the shot off more often because all of a sudden it doesn't seem that difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the the part that people really struggle with is they're standing over the ball and they're thinking, thinking, thinking. And you can just use your body. You've heard me talk about this before, Howard. You, you, you can use your body as an indicator of what's really going on for you because your feelings are in your body. It's like, you know, if someone says something and you get embarrassed, your face automatically goes red. It, your body's an indicator of what's going on. So if you're standing over your shot, and you don't feel comfortable, all your feelings, your body, the sensations are saying that, you know what, you don't have this shot. <laughs> this is, there's, there's no good that's going to come of this young man or lady. So step back, try something else, see how you feel, and if you feel better, go with it. You know, you've been talking to me about that since we've, uh, you know, sort of started this journey together uh, over a year or so ago. And, you know, last night uh, it came up, I was about to putt, um, playing uh, you know our little men's night, you know, kind of a tournament, and I had read the putt, and then I got over it, and I could feel with my body that I had underread the break. You know how you just get that feeling like, wow, this is—you can just feel your body leaning, mm-hmm. and so I, I, I 
I was about to pun. I thought, you know, stop this. Because I knew I had, didn't really know where. I actually said this to myself. You have really no idea where you're going to start this. So I, I, I started again now with that information, with just having felt it with my feet. And that's not that I made it or not, but it was I, I felt okay stepping away from it. And it only took a second or two. And, no, you know, the thing is, you think you're going to be embarrassed, but no one says anything. They can kind of go, well, I guess he just didn't feel comfortable. I mean, if you did it every shot, people wouldn't want to play with you. But Absolutely. It, it's, it's, but I always tell people that restarting, you're going to spend less time in the woods. <laughs> no, for when sure. When you do restarts, you're going to hit less shots. So it makes more sense. It's just whether you've got the cojones to put up with your buddies, you know, being concerned what, what your friends are going to think. Screw that. Do what you need to do to take well, care of yourself. And i got to tell you, uh, my whole putting and my whole short game routine, which we've been working on together now for about a month, uh, it, it's really uncanny uh, how much more comfortable I am around the greens and how much more, how many more putts I'm sinking, not dwelling over you know 19 practice swings and, and talking myself out of reads and worrying over things. And uh, uh, Anyway, so... Um, one last thing before we get to our guests. You know, we talk a lot about games you can play on the show. Par 18, look it up. It's a great short game game. Um, you know, uh, trying different shots. Carl Morris has got a, a great game where you're, you know, you're hitting every shot three different ways. One of the things we talked about uh, is playing with three clubs. And last Sunday... Oh, yeah. Last Sunday, I went out with uh, a friend of ours who's been on the show, Paul Gortner. Guy's like a plus one. Um, and we went out with a couple other guys. And Paul and I played the golf course from, I don't know, whatever, 6,600 and 6,700 yards with a three-wood, six-iron, and a gap wedge. And he shot 78, and I shot 79. And I'm going to tell you, I had, we had so much fun, you know, hitting uh, choke down three woods. I putted with my three wood. He belly wedged it all around. It was insane. Are, are you allowed to have fun when you play golf? I gotta, this I'm going to tell you. a deadly, serious, grim game where score counted for everything. And the funny thing is, Gordon and I were talking before we went to the first tee. I go, what do you think par is? He goes, uh, I don't know, 85. I go, sure, let's, let's go with that. I couldn't have given a shit if it was 95. But we both were talking about it after. There were a couple of shots he hit. There was two in particular that I hit. I had the, a choke down three wood up a hill into the wind. I'm going to tell you, it will go down as one of the best shots I hit all season. Because it just, the, the point, the takeaway really is, if you want to feel engaged and fun and creative on every shot for a round, try it. Because, you know, and I, I promise you, you won't score that much differently there was only a couple of occasions, Timmy, where I thought, hmm, I really would rather have had a four iron than this hooded six iron, but what the hell? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really, yeah, we talked about that earlier in the week, and it came up with, uh, I had a session with a, with a student this week, and, and we were talking with a student about commitment, and he, he's finding that the more he commits to his shot, to his shots, just the better he's playing, and he's spending less time on the range, you know, working on mechanics and stuff. Just committing one part of that of his process, he's hitting better. So where I connect the dots is that I think that when you're doing that type of thing, just with three clubs and you're manufacturing shots, like you said, um, you know, you're, you're you're hooding a six iron, maybe playing a little bit back in your stance. Like you have really seen that shot in your mind, you know, and you've committed to it, and you've maybe felt it and you're really committed to that shot and you're gonna your chances of pulling it off when you're committed to something are far greater than if you just kind of go you know whatever this is my you know stock uh, seven iron or 100 yeah, yeah. pick the number it's under 65 so smooth six or whatever 
Um, and you haven't really seen it. But when you're doing what you're doing, you're seeing the shots, you're committing to it, um, you're, it's all good. And that's all part of, as to that creative element of golf. I mean, just like, think of those times in which like people say that Phil Mickelson, he's got a way better shot at getting it close on the green if he has to hit it, you know, you know out of the woods between. And that's right. Know. You know, because well, because your senses are engaged, and as you just said, yeah. I just I don't want to dwell on this, but what you said is totally accurate. When you are trying to hood a six iron or fl- or hit a flop shot with a gap wedge, you have to kind of imagine it, and then your body kind of goes, "Oh, well, that's what you want me to do." And I'm going to tell you a couple times again, I hit like a thirty yard flop gap wedge, like to ten feet. I was like, "That's ridiculous," but I had to because that's all I had. It was either that or the three wood. Yeah, um, and you, like, you unconsciously see it. it yeah, for it, sure. You don't even have to really try to work. You don't even have to try on it. You just do it. it it's just intuitive. As humans, we kind of see things whether we're flicking a light switch or something. We kind of see it before we do it. And and so when you can do that in golf, man, you're, you, you just. You give yourself an opportunity for what's possible. All right. Listen, our first guest, our only guest uh, today is the, uh, well, he's currently the executive director of uh, Parasport Ontario. Um, a very interesting character who many years ago uh, was trying to be a professional tennis player, was a professional tennis player. And uh, he has got an interesting story of sort of being a, a high-level athlete, and it wasn't until he discovered sort of the inner game of tennis, and as I mentioned in the introduction about how transitioning from tennis to golf, using some of the lessons learned on the mental side of the the sports, uh, say hello to Al. Is it is it Al? Sorry, what? Al or Alan? Either way, I'm. Good. Alan seems very formal, but I'll go with it. <laughs> Alan Trivet, uh, Tim. Alan Trivet is our guest today. Good morning. I'm going with Al. Just you know, I, I just like feel Al. this. That's my golf persona, so I'm good with that today. There you go, your friend of Howard, the friend of mine. Well, Al, it's funny because, you know, Al and I really uh, don't really hang. Al uh, was the club captain. Were you in the club captain last year? I was. So he's, uh, uh, you know, on the executive of Glen Karen. By the way, Glen Karen, also a sponsor of uh, Swing Thoughts. There's never been a, t- a better time to play Glen Karen. <laughs> um, it really Love is. It. A, it's a wonderful place to play. And they, by the way, have put our Swing Thoughts logo on the men's night scorecard. Wow, cool we are stuff. just hitting heights that just uh, I couldn't have imagined weeks ago. Even so, I played golf I think once or twice with Al, and I found out that you were a professional tennis player. So, give us some of the background. Yeah, we well, I use that term somewhat loosely. Uh, my wife's a teacher, and I've gone to her career school career days and said uh, to kids, "Listen, I've traveled all around the world. I played on cow dung tennis courts in India and ant hills in Australia, and uh, I played professional tennis for a year, and I lost twelve thousand dollars. So stay in school." <laughs> <laughs> so would you would you have been on the tennis equivalent of uh, I don't know the Web dot com or the dis- the where the Challenge Tour? Yeah, so whatever the lowest golf tour may be, where all you're really seeking are points. It's not so much for money yet. You're trying to get points to get to the next level, which is called the challenger level. So I played on the satellite level of tennis, but this is back in the uh, the late 80s, so things have changed since then. It's now called the Futures, I think. But still, you were in an excellent high level. I mean, you know, versus the tennis population, you can poo-poo it, but that's a pretty high level of, of athleticism. 
Sure. All, I mean, my 900 in the world ATP ranking um, you know, didn't get me any money whatsoever, but it did open some doors for me, and it did allow me to see the world and to be able to compete and say, at the end of the day, I gave it my shot, and I, I did everything I could to see if I could make that dream come true. Wait a second. You were... Uh were you really ranked 900th in the world? 912, actually. Yeah. See, most of us, I mean, Tim and I aren't even ranked 900th in this room. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's pretty impressive stuff. Again, a lot of you, you might say, well, okay, I played on some, you know, in some crappy places. But the fact is, most people have never, ever played at anything approaching that level of, uh, you know, of a sport. Yeah, and actually, one of my uh, one of the, my friends at Glencairn, uh, when I won the men's night championship one year, oh, did you? Uh, indicated to his friends and our buddies, look, Al loves to compete. You know, he's been there before. He's been in that moment. He's not afraid of the pressure that comes with it. And I would bring out my best golf on Wednesdays, which is what we tabulated our men's night cha- you know, championship overall on. And you know, Club C, you know, I've won. Uh, I've won the net match play. I've won. I've been right there on the final day as the lead going into the club championship. I just love to compete, and that's really what I was trying to work on my golf game, such that I could get to the level where I could compete in the GAO Mid Am, which I've done for the last two years in the qualifier, because I just wanted to be able to compete in sure. golf. Every ball in the hole. And we can talk about, uh, you know, how competitive golf is different than everyday golf and why that someone like you that's been a competitor all his life would gravitate toward that. But talk to us a little bit about Tim Galloway. I mean, Tim and I, Tim O'Connor and I have talked about his book, Inner Tennis. And even though Inner Golf is is, um, similar, but a lot of people still reference Inner Tennis as kind of like one of the early you know, um, books that deals with the inner mental game of any sport, tennis in this case. Yeah, sort of the seminal book, really. It, it preceded so many of the current teachings in all of sport about sure. ment- uh, mental training. And so there's there's lots about out there right now about visualization and routines and rituals. But what really Tim Galloway talked about in Inner Tennis was clearing your mind and the notion that you could only have one thought in your mind at one time. So instead of randomly letting, let's say, forecasting a result in your head, and in my case that would be I'm leading in a match and I'm already thinking about winning the match and who I'm going to play next, it was clearing the mind and ensuring that nothing could get in. So the way he, way he uh, advocated doing that was to have one word that you would say in between points. And in tennis, you've got about 25 seconds between points maximum. In golf, you've got multiple minutes sometimes between shots. Yeah, and usually in golf, that word that people are saying to themselves starts with an F <laughs> and ends with a K over and over and over again. Yeah, so when I read the book, I was in Australia and I was playing the satellite, and I had my best tournament I've ever had in my life. I went through five <coughs> rounds of qualifying while reading that book, and the one, the one piece that I took from it was I said the word ball, B-A-L-L, between every single point for five consecutive matches. And I'm telling you, by the end of that, I was exhausted, and I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine saying that word anymore. And that's what, I didn't think it had any sustainability, that system, but the concept was absolutely true. I didn't allow anything in my mind in between points except that word and then when it was ready to start the point I'd begin my rituals and routines and I'd just play the point of course you want to think tactically and, and strategically during periods but you don't want to think about you know you don't want to get down yourself for missing a shot you don't want to get too high about hitting a great shot and you don't want to forecast the wind the loss who's watching you know what the weather is how bad the wind is today all those things it just managed to focus me for that period of time but as I mentioned it was very unsustainable and I had that one great tournament and that was it so, I mean, there's just so many things that you're saying that I find interesting. One of them, though, in tennis versus golf, as you mentioned, there's a lot of time in golf to think about how horrible life is. Um, 
but in tennis, you're it's a you're reacting quickly. There, there, the points are happening, and you really don't have time to think about technique or how I play tennis. So, how does that apply? I mean, you know, what I'm saying it's more of a reaction versus the golf. Pro- the problem with most golfers is they've got so much time to think about how to play. Yeah, and so in tennis, it's an open-skilled sport. So you have so many variables coming at you. You have a ball received, and then you have the ball sent. You have the, how the ball bounces, the spin of the ball coming in, the, the elements with the wind and the sun. So there are a lot of things that your body just has to naturally adapt to. In golf, it's a little more closed sport. You have, although you do have the, the elements of different golf course, different hole, different club in your hand, you control when you hit the ball, and it's not moving. So in many ways, you have just more time with golf than you have in tennis and that that time i think we use detrimentally i don't think we use it to the best of our advantage and that's why I, I speak a lot about rituals and routines and you see when someone uh is having a great round and then they start to struggle toward the end because a they're forecasting to the result they've already thought about how great it's going to be in the clubhouse and tell all their buddies how yeah well exactly but it's also they they get ahead of themselves and they, they change their routine and i think if they could just stay on focus and just continue with a ritual and a routine that works for them but that's the key for a lot of higher handicappers is they don't know themselves well enough. They don't know what their rituals and routines are. So what I try and you know, help my buddies, and I play with a lot of higher handicap players, uh, higher than me anyway, uh, is that you know once when you know you're playing well, try and remember what that felt like and even right. take, take notes about it so you can have that opportunity. Well, that's yeah. a great point. Tim, I wanted you to react, uh, get your reaction in a second. And one of the things that you said too, Al, that's so true, you know, lots of people start forecasting and freaking out toward the end of a round. I play with lots of guys regularly. On the second or third hole, they're like, okay, well, that's a this show, the day is done. And I, this happened like recently, and I was talking to a pretty good player, and he goes, well, that's it for this round. I go, are you kidding me? There's 13 holes left. How do you know this isn't going to be the best 13 holes of your life? So, Tim, talk about uh, a little bit to react to what uh, Al said about rituals, routines, and, and uh, you know, uh, one word and things like that. Yeah, well, I, um, yeah, um, that book. The Inner Game of Tennis, I recommend that to every uh, golfer who's listened to this show and to every client I work with. Uh, it is the seminal book. It's the starting point um, for coaching. And I just say to people, you just wherever you see the word tennis in that book, just replace it with golf. And the key thing that I took away from that book for me was that we all have like this inner brilliance, this athleticism, uh, like our bodies are products of millions of years of evolution. They're just capable of so much stuff. But, we, but for some reason, our ego, which is kind of like this two-bit, 25-cent computer, tries to override this billion-dollar body we have. And I thought the core message for Galway was get the hell out of your own way and allow your body and your subconscious to do what it needs to do. And so and so how does a golfer or a tennis player or anyone do it? It starts with awareness. Where is my attention? And that's largely what happens to golfers is they get focused on the future, you know, of what's going to happen, forecasting, as Al, would, uh, Al said. So... But it's being aware of what's going on. So, say, say like on the, the subject of routine, that you want to keep it pretty consistent. But you know, are you aware then when you're taking too long, or you're getting careful, or you're being fearful? Like Greg Norman, perfect example. I think it was the '96 Masters. Um, as you know, during the, the first couple of rounds, pretty brisk routine, and then he would stand over his shots in that fourth round, 
And he would just stand there and start to milk the grip and take too long and, you know, that round. So that's a perfect example of a golfer getting just out of his routine and getting careful and not being aware of really what was going on. And it was just a, a one-way uh, trip to disaster. I want to talk to uh, Al about one, one thing you just said about higher handicap players don't seem to know themselves as golfers. And it's interesting that the lower the handicap guys that you play with, the more you could you can time when they're going to hit a shot. They do the same thing all the time. But I want you to talk a little bit about, Al, of your observations of sort of why is it that a guy with a 16 or 18 handicap doesn't realize that having a routine is a kind of a key to becoming a lower handicap player. It's not about how well you hit a golf ball. Well, that's that's probably the million dollar question as to why. But I think they they give you clues. Yeah, I think there are there are pieces in there. There's small bits that you can find. Like your first your first uh, one of your first guests on the show was Paul Jacoby, and he was a high handicapper. And he talked about when he played his best, he had a song in his head. Yeah. And I I truly believe in the song versus the word ball in golf. So you can't if you can sing a song and be sick of it by the end of eighteen holes, you will have gotten out of your own way. Yeah. And I think that the high handicapper gets in his own way more often than he doesn't. So, and what the low handicapper does is by having those rituals and routines, he's staying out of his way so he's not introducing new thoughts, new concepts during the round. And I think you know, we all say on the range is where you should be working on your game and on, on the golf course is when you actually perform or you'll you'll show what, how much practice and, and uh, work you put in on your game. That's not where you work on your game as on the golf course. I think high handicappers work on their game on the on the golf course. You talk about Tim Southcott all the time. He's on the range constantly, right? He's working on his game. High handicappers don't have that kind of commitment. They likely wouldn't be high handicappers if they committed like well, that. Well, I mean, I mean, part of it, though, is, I mean, you know, people like Tim or me and, you know, other people of our OCD ilk that spend a, an inordinate amount of time working on the game. But if you saw me on the range or you saw what I do in my practice, it's not what you, it's, it's not just beating golf balls. You know, I, I try and emulate the game of golf as much as I can in practice. And believe me, I don't know anybody, Tim included, that's ever hit as many golf balls in total as I have. But when I'm playing the game, I'm playing. I, I like to play. I feel like, okay, what's the game here? What I, what I see in 18 handicappers is their reaction to a, uh, a shaky shot is different than me or you or Tim or Tim O'Connor. I, I know that there's another shot to be played. I'm now, if I hit a poor shot, I'm thinking, okay, how can I make the best of this? Whereas a higher handicap is thinking, oh, oh, there's my crappy swing again, or there's my crappy game, when they don't focus on, okay, I've made a mistake, now how can I make bogey versus double versus triple? And I think there's a difference for them is the, the shot they want to be able to hit and the shot that they they can hit or they, sure, they I agree. know they can hit. Yep. And I think they have a wider disparity between those two than a better player. better player knows how to narrow down. This is what's within my range or my ability at this moment. So, But if I may interrupt, it goes to what you're saying. It's because I know because uh, we know ourselves. Yeah. I, if I got 220 you know, over water into the wind and I'm not feeling it that day, I'm not going to try it. Because I, I'm conscious of where I know my own ability, and I think a, a 16 or a 17 handicapper, two things. If they, if they gave up less and were a little bit more aware of their limitations in any given situation, they could easily be a lot lower because they wouldn't try shots, as we often say, that they have no business trying. Right, Timmy? 
Yeah, well, I think it's it's partially that kind of awareness, but I was thinking that with a higher handicap player, and, and these are good people, right? We're not disparaging the higher handicaps among us <laughs> at all, but a, a, a better player has generally played longer, maybe started the game earlier as a junior or, or whatever, and, and the game is easier to pick up you know, when you're younger. So better players may have been exposed to more coaching or they just have a trained mind in how to stay out of their way. So what I'm saying here is that the more just time you've played the game and learned it and learned what you're capable of to get to your point and just hit certain shots, your confidence level uh, rises and your just ability to, to hit shots without trying hard without taking you know the magic swing tip that you heard michael breed say or or someone mention on the range and you're trying to make that move happen you're you're really almost forcing it to happen a better player generally has some awareness that he, that he or she has some certain skills and they just apply them and try and make a shot it'll generally it won't come off all the time but it might come off you know the word that we've been using for a while you know, in a serviceable way. So um, I want to get to Al and back to playing tennis. So you're a high-level, top 1,000 tennis players on planet Earth. And at what age did you take up golf? Uh, really in the t- my 20s. I golfed a little bit in college. Just uh, We had a free golf course at Louisiana Tech where I was playing tennis. And uh, so we had a free course. I played two or three times a year. But in my 20s, uh, I started playing maybe eight to 15 times a year, but only 11 years ago, and I'm 51 this year, only 11 years ago did I start playing regularly as because I joined a club, and so that's really when I started playing. And what kind of, um, 11 years ago, uh, so we're, I'm sorry, what, how old were you then? 11 years, I was about 40. Okay, so 11 years ago, you started playing sort of regularly, and what handicap did you bring to golf 11 years ago? Just over 14, I think. And what is your index today? Index. And I'll look it up, if so don't tell me some made-up cockamamie bullshit. Index is six five right six point five right now, and I think I was down to a low as about three point nine or four point oh a year or so ago. So that's pretty amazing, especially for somebody. Yeah, I'd say, especially because we all, you know, again talking about the fact that uh, uh, basically what Timmy O'Connor just said about you know most good players that I know were good players as kids. But um, what did you bring from your experience? in tennis at the high level, and, and we talked a little bit about competition, but just walk me through how you approached golf so that you could get yourself to become a better player, number one, and a competitive player. Yeah, well, it was a total change of attitude because when I first started golfing, I wanted to hit it long and far and just beat the heck out of the ball. Sure. And so that was like hitting 300-yard drives was what drove me, actually brought me to golf, was that, that, that thrill, that juice I got from hitting the ball far. But then I realized long and wrong is no fun at the end of the day when you're... Long and wrong, kids. Not good. Walking the golf course. And, and I, honestly, I became better because I wanted to compete. And whether it was men's night or club championship or the, the NASA with my buddies I wanted to compete and I don't mind being beaten but I hate losing I hate beating myself so if someone wants to make a birdie and I make a par I'm good with that but I don't want to make a double and they win with a bogey that stuff drives me crazy so it was that burning that competitiveness inside me which I I I bring in all parts of my life. My wife won't play board games with me. Hmm. It's, yeah, uh, I, I have one of those personalities, too. So, uh, it's so funny you say that because um, in our family, you know, the idea of all of us sitting around playing a board game uh, never included me. Because apparently I have some anger issues. 
<laughs> yeah, so there's some uber competitiveness. But, yes. But, but mostly it was like I knew I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. And because I just I love golf that much, it's my I'm you know we moved our house to be closer to my golf course in part, and I I stopped playing competitive tennis. I was playing senior nationals, over thirty five nationals, and I couldn't walk for a week after I played. And I thought, why am I doing this? I'm missing a week of golf, and I'm sore as hell because I'm not I'm not training for this. So, yeah, uh, it's what I wanted to do. So I said, if I'm going to do it, I want to be better at it. Craig Capito, one of your guests last week, I think he worked with me for the course of a year when I was captain, and uh, improved my game immensely and. And, you know, it's it's so gratifying to know that I can actually compete because last year my goal was – I like to set goals for myself. And last year my goal was to make it into the the, uh, the champ flight of the club championships. And so I gave myself a play-in date. I was one, uh, one index number off uh, getting in on my own. I didn't want to declare in. So I had a Monday round to see if I could play the gold tees from Glencairn and see if I could shoot 80 or below, which is what I knew I had to, to bring my index. For your differential, yeah, yeah, because yeah, you were going to lose a, a score. Craig Watkins came out with me, and I – shot an 80 on that Monday morning wow. and called it my Monday qualifier and nice. I knew I wasn't going to be able to compete with Gortner and, and the likes but I want that was my goal for the year this year I want to win the A flight that's that's my goal and I I I like I think Tim talked about chasing your tail last week and for me it's like goal setting is one of the most important things for anybody it's it's okay to be just make sure as long as you have realistic and attainable goals they can't be I want to play in the PGA senior tour like I'm not, I'm never going to be that good I'm never going to commit the effort the time to it I can't in my in my lifestyle but I do have goals that are attainable and if I don't shoot for something I'm not shooting for anything um do you have goals, say, uh, for a round? Because we often talk about playing your best. I believe you need to remove an expectation for the for the day. But you know, listen, if you're driving, you know, if you're driving to the GAO uh, Mid Am Qualifier, obviously there's a subtext. I want to qualify today. But as far as you starting a round of golf, do you think, oh, do you have a number in mind, or do you have a feeling in mind? Do you have a? Are you working on something mentally when you're playing? Yeah, so if it's a competitive round that's important to me, I want to get into the round. So I want to—I want, I don't want any damage in my scorecard in the first couple holes. I can take a bogey, but I don't want a big number. So I'm probably not going to have a lot of risk reward in my first couple. Of, first couple of you can holes. take some conservative shots. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm and and to a certain extent, I need to I need to get past that a little bit because I then it inhibits my swing a little bit. I, I shut it down, and I, I play too tentatively. So it's it's probably a goal should be a goal of mine to actually have a little more freedom in those early holes but i don't think about what score i want to i want to have on the day because that's it's just too far four hours away to you, and, and you never know up. it's too far away but every shot i want to make sure that i've done everything i should have for that shot and what of, of late i've become very good at not making two bad shots in a row excellent so i played poorly yesterday but managed to you know to limit the bleeding because i kept the, the one bad shot at a time timmy let's talk a little bit about just react to that in terms of when you talk when you work with players and you know including me we often talk about intention for a round, and that intention never has anything to do with a number. Absolutely. Um, what, yeah, to connect exactly what Al saying and intention, what he... What he's done, he's finding success in his preparation. Uh, you know, he's got the intention that he's not going to take himself out early. So he's prepared to play conservatively. And so, yeah, he's struggling maybe with how that might inhibit him. But having that kind of uh, preparation slash intention um, really helps. And, again, it doesn't have anything to do with the number. And the intention can be... Um, all kinds of things, whatever serves you, but something that is important to you could serve you, perhaps the, the others that 
that you're playing with. And I, I just think that whole idea of intention, it's kind of like uh, it frees you up. It's not like there's a this spotlight that's deeply focused on you and how you're performing in your score. It's almost like you're tapping into this, um, wow, almost this higher plane of, of how you're going to engage as a human being. And you just it's a freeing way to play the game. And um, so when you have those wider intentions, you just play with a little bit more freedom. And what's really cool about it is that you play better without trying to play better. Um. You have a couple things I want to run by you, too. Uh, I'm not sure which one first, but I'll, I'll give you an example. My brother, uh, Steve, both of my brothers are high handicap players. They both love golf. Uh, I say I've replaced my late father as the, whenever they have a round or a golf question. Here's a true story. You'll love this, O'Connor. My older brother's 64. He's on a range in Calgary like five days ago. I, pick, I see him. He's calling me. I go, hey, how you doing, Dave? And all I hear is... <sighs> I'm wind and he's, I could tell he's outside. I go, what's up? He goes, I'm on the range. I need some help. I'm like, are we really going to do this now? And so for 10 minutes, I'm talking him through. He's having some trouble with his alignment. This is like, this is like Bill from Ohio uh, on <laughs> Golf right. Academy Live. Hey, I'm slicing it. Can you help me? No, and so my brothers, I'm the goat. Because we used to call my dad, but now I guess they've got me. Anyway, my other brother, Steve. Has, has texted me, and last night he texted me, hey, I shot 89. For him, it's huge. Yeah. And I was really happy for him. He goes, I shot 89, 42 in the front. And I, I go, that's amazing. Uh, he says, today I started with four pars in a bogey, and then it all went to shit. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, you know, talk, you know, tell me about it. What were you feeling? He says, I felt calm all for those first four or five holes, and then, you know, I was concentrating, and then, you know, little by little, it went away, and we've all been in, you know, a lot of people listening have been in that situation. So here's what I wrote him, and I wanted to get your reaction. I said, when I, when I play well, I feel a sense of, of almost calmness, almost tranquility. And I said, as I put a series of good holes together, as you did, what I concentrate on is not what that will lead to. I concentrate on continuing that feeling. Of con- what, like I, I say to myself, okay, obviously you've put a bunch of good holes together, and rather than worry about will this continue, I think, okay, how am I feeling and, and, and continuing breathing and all the things we talk about? And I said, here's the inter- and I told my brother Steve, I said, the, the idea of concentrating on that versus the numbers and scores and, and the whole thing in total is, I said, you can have a bad hole. You can make a bogey or a double, but if you concentrate on continuing the calm sort of, again, for a lack of esoteric, you know, a, a tranquil feeling, even when you have a bad hole, you get back to a series of good holes then because hey, that was just something that happened, and now you can go on and you know get back to making some good scores. Versus playing well like he was, then you make a triple, and now it takes you an hour to make your next par. You know, we talk about people going uh, double bo- or triple bogey, double bogey, bogey, par. It takes them four holes to get back some equanimity. Now, what do you think of that? Either of you. I'll jump in. Um, what I really um, like about what you were, your approach is, is the focus on the feeling and, and really about awareness of what's going on. And it's natural for, for anyone to start to think about score. It's, it's natural for anybody to have thoughts, really, of any kind. 
and it's quite natural when you're playing well you your mind naturally defaults to to the future going hey this could be the time i get the big reward you know of whether it's going to be the reward of winning a tournament or a low score uh and that's totally natural but it's what you do with your awareness that you're you're suddenly paying attention to the future and having that awareness of of just a good feeling of you know what it was when you're in that in that state when you're hitting good shots and just trying to bring yourself into it that's why i always tell players uh particularly after they've had really good rounds uh is to in their mind just to go focus on what particular holes you were really played well and you felt good about it and close your eyes and think about it and drink it in what that feeling was in your body and maybe even journal on it because the more we attach high emotion to good things the more we ingrain them and we can pull them out but if we attach high emotion to bad things that's what our ego draws on when we're in stressful situations. Well, it's, kind of, it's kind of what Al mentioned a, a, a while back, though, and I thought it was very interesting you said about higher handicap players. You say to them, listen, you know, try and think about what it was you were doing when all was going well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so it's when we get out of that, it's when we get out of that place of just understanding what we of what we're used to, really. And that's what happens when you start, like your your brother, he was playing, playing really well. Well, in F, in, and though he enjoyed being there, he was out of his comfort zone. He's not used to being in that place. And so uh, it's really weird how our ego will, will try and subvert us. It'll try and take us back to a place where we're comfortable shooting crappy golf. Al, what do you think about uh, what I said to my brother about being in kind of a uh, kind of concentrating on on the things you can take care of? You know, you can take care of how your posture is, your walking, your your hydration, your not drinking nine beer. Yeah, all all that is is really important, and, and the acknowledgement and recognition of your state of mind during those periods of peak performance, I think, are critical. But what we don't do at at any level. Uh, outside of high performance is actually train mental training or mental toughness. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example of a story of, of a player getting to his ideal peak zone, and you take that for what it's worth. Is I was a national coach way back when for Tennis Canada, and we were coaching an, uh, a national junior camp, and one of our coaches, uh, Gator, was doing a mental training inside a squash court. So all the kids were lying down on a squash court and with their eyes closed, and they're doing a visualization exercise. And Gator said to them, I want you to find your happy place go to your happy place and so they're all doing that they're all doing that and then we all notice this one kid whose happy place happened to have a real rise if if you get that's the first thing i thought of i was thinking i'm glad i wasn't there and so he's a 14 year old boy and he's got he's got a little wood and it was (laughs) it was was incredible and i thought you know that's training himself to get to a certain spot yeah and and feel that and i don't think we do that outside of high performance in sport we will go on the course and we'll work on technique and we'll work a little bit on tactics but the mental and even physical we'll do we tell people to do yoga and uh i know and everything else but the mental side we don't actually get them to train it so when you watch jason day stand behind the ball and he's visualizing seeing his shot and he stands there until he can see it i think my buddies could stand there until the cows come home they're, they're never, never going to see it see that well yeah. I, I think you know it's funny because you know again if you watched my routine and it's been developing over time and especially since i came back to golf a couple years ago um 
you could time it because I do the same thing probably in the same time frame every time, including visualizing my shot, asking what's the shot I'm trying to hit in this moment. The worst guys that I play with, even good players that get down on themselves, they, they not only are they giving up on them, themselves physically, but they give up on themselves mentally because, as you just said, they're not really taking that into consideration as an everyday best practice. Yeah, I, I really like what Al said about training for high performance. That, as golfers, that's where we generally fall down. Um, where most golfers, even good players, uh, run to the range to fix some kind of physical thing in their swing, like mechanics. You know, I just got to get on playing, got to transfer my weight, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't use their non-playing time to prepare themselves and train themselves. And that's what doing the three club thing does that prepares you for hitting shots um you know doing journaling uh thinking about really good rounds having an intention at the beginning of the day what's your you know what are you actually going to work on exactly and like trying like on the court on the range you know playing the front nine you know by picking out targets you know i'm going to hit a drive here and then i'm going to have to hit a six iron and then i miss my target chip Having games of consequence, all that stuff trains you so that when you're in those positions, when you start getting it going or you're in a tournament like, like Al was talking about being the mid-end, when you're on that first couple of holes, you've kind of been there because you've been training yourself. And I think in, among golfers, that's where, where um, a lot of players, they, just, they don't understand is that just like you can't go into a marathon without having put in your mileage, you can't go into any endeavor unless you've done the preparation and the work, and that includes preparing your mind to go to an ideal state on the golf course. Now, what were you going to say just before uh, Tim jumped in there? Yeah, so I, I think uh, well, I see it all the time. Guys turn a warm-up on the range into a workout, right? They, they confuse going down to the range before a round where they're supposed to just trying to get prepared to play to, oh, so I'm not hitting it well, and yeah. they, they pound a 1,000 balls. Instead, they should be thinking, okay, so this is what I've got today. I've got to find a way to work with that. And and I'm guilty of that myself, for sure. Yep. Uh, but I think that that's, that's knowing yourself, right? That, well, who am I and what can I bring today? Well, and let's talk about it from realistic. Per, uh, you know, one of the things that our friend Jay Gilbert's uh, great app, birdiegolf.com. Birdie Go- I mean, I, I, I use it all the time. And I'm going to tell you, it's, it, even at, again, I've been playing tournament golf for a long, long time. But I have found an invaluable tool of self-actualization in terms of keeping track of what you, what you were thinking, uh, what your intention was that day. And one of the things they ask in Birdie is, how did your warm-up go on the range? Did you use that time to warm your body? Versus, as you said, Al, I uh, forgot how to play. And I'll just sit here and try and remember how. And we've all been, again, I've, you know, you sit there going, man, I don't have it today. And rather than just go, well, I guess I'll just hit this bunt fade that I seem to be producing. You sit there trying to figure out how to play golf. And Timmy, I mean, you would, I'm sure, tell your players the same thing. Hey, if you're if you happen to be fading it that day, then just that's what you got to hit. Yeah, it's like Lee Trevino. It's, you dance with the one that brung you. He said, ingrammatically. Um, Absolutely. Part of what golf is, again, we've talked about this many times with people like Carl Morris, is that there's, people are into this, this always striving to hit perfect shots or find that consist, or play consistently. Um, that to me, you have way more fun and you play better when largely you just manage your game well. And because most of the times you're not going to hit shots ideally. And if you just play with what you got, 
um, you choose conservative targets and go aggressively for those, then you're going you're gonna to have way more fun than rather than trying, as you were saying, a find a swing thought on the range so that I can hit that draw that I've been coveting. Uh, with us today is uh, Al Trivet. He's a, uh, a bright uh, former um, tennis player. If you just happen to turn the podcast on now, that voice, uh, the director of Parasport Ontario. Uh, last couple of minutes, Al, what did you want to say? Yeah, so in, when I played tennis, I had A, B, C, and D game. If one wasn't working, I could go to another, and a lot of it was tactic. So if, if a, specific, a specific game style wasn't working against a player, I could modify my tactics. And I had a revelation recently that I, I was thinking, I don't have a B game in golf. And so if it's, my game's not on, then I'm really going to struggle. And I had a revelation recently. It was just as you said there, Tim, was I've got to play with what I brought today. And so if, if I can't hit my three wood off the turf, then I'm not going for the par five and two i'm going to lay up to 100 yards and i'm going to try and make my birdie that way there's different ways of using what i have in the day so i've i've become less stubborn about the shot so well, i used to sort of plan out around a golf I'd, I'd look at all 18 holes and say this is what i want to do in those holes but i did it before i had any knowledge of how i felt that day right so now i'm saying okay so i don't have i don't have that four iron 210 into the wind you know today like i'm not going to hit that i shot. would submit al so. i've seen you hit it you don't have it on your best day i'm kidding <laughs> if you're next so next time you got four on into the wind and it's two ten, call me. I want to watch that shot. You know that's a that's a practical Al. What you're talking about is a very practical example of acceptance. Yep. Most people think of acceptance as you know I've made a double bogey. I'm at peace with it. I'm still a good person. Yeah, that's part of that. But acceptance is also that you're going to accept the game that you brought to the course that day. You're a different person every day you show up. So if you accept that you're at a certain place with your game, as opposed to, I need to fix this, or I'm going to prove I can do this, or I just have to. I mean, we're so driven by results in our golf culture. But if we play from this place of acceptance, this is what I got today, you're well, going to have more fun, well, and you're, you're, you're going to hit the ball better. What uh, Al said, too, I like the word uh, stubborn, because I think golfers... There is a almost dogmatic commitment to some things that aren't serving us very well. And what I mean by that is, you know, like, we just assume that every shot's supposed to look like every other shot. And you're, you know, one of the things we've talked about on this show, and I've, you know, done some work on it myself, is how am I feeling in this moment? And what will that, what is the, if I feel great about my swing that day, and you know, Timmy said, listen, if you feel like you're in, you know, you're really firing that day, then fire at stuff. Like, take dead aim. And I've, and I've said that to myself. I've said that to myself recently in some really good rounds. Like, like dude, um, you're playing well. Let's go for that flag. Conversely, you know, I made a couple of mistakes last night trying to qualify for this uh, inner club thing. Um, I made a couple of mistakes of uh, decision, but not swing. And these, you know, I sort of made a poor decision. I went for a flag I, I shouldn't have, and I made bogey. And but you know, I thought about it after. I sort of gave myself a bit of a break because it wasn't like, you know, um, you know, I, I was I recognized that the decision led to the bogey, not that I'm a bad person. And you can kind of walk away from that, going, well, you know, I, I sort of took a, sh- a chance there, and maybe I shouldn't have. Versus, and it gives what that does too. By the way, is it gives you a realistic. Um, assessment of what's just happened. Do you know what I'm saying? Got it. Right on. Um, Timmy? But there's also those times that, but I, you know, acceptance is when it's not going so great, but there's times in which if you got it going, man, there's no better feeling. Yeah. 
then I'm taking dead aim at this, and yeah, there's some trouble here, but I'm feeling good going for it. Man, I mean, that's part of the reason we play golf, I believe, is to feel that excitement and to pull it off, and yeah, baby. Well, and then what Al was saying, too, about, you know, I think more importantly, too, on days when you're just, you sort of have to sort of assess yourself and go, okay, I didn't get enough sleep last night, I'm, yeah. I kind of rushed here, and, you know, I'm not really into this, then maybe that's the time, you know, you, you lay up. I mean, I'll tell you one, getting back to playing with three clubs, I played a couple of the toughest holes we have in that golf course. The second hole at Scotch Block is 452 over bunker. Uh, I mean, it's a tough, tough par four. Three wood, six iron, two putts, four. And I said to Gortner, I'm like, I would never in my, I would never stand up on that tee and hit three wood. But you know, it was slightly downwind and I just, and I hit it really well. And it put me at about, I don't know, 175, 180. And I, it was like, it was hooded my six iron. I got it on the green. I said, you know, it's so funny. When would we have, when do you ever stand up on that tee and think, oh, but just hit three wood? Like, never. Never. Um, anyways, uh, Tim O'Connor, I know you got to go. You got a big uh, weekend ahead of you. Um, any final thoughts from the mental performance coach at the Glen Abbey Golf Academy? Uh, just it's been great having Al uh, on. Um, I really like a lot of the things that we talked about today um, about you know really learning how to stay out of your own way, which goes back to. Timothy Galway again. That book, Inner Game of Tennis, is just a, a must-have in any golfer's collection, and just a you know, really good sense of uh, of, of awareness of, of what's going on, and uh, really cool how good athletes uh, like Al and can can come to golf and and play the game, um, you know, largely because they they know what it takes to be an athlete and how to use their mind and develop an ideal performance state. So a lot of cool stuff today. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Al's story about, you know, you know, you can make yourself a very good player and not have a scratch golfer's golf swing. You don't need to hit it perfectly every time. If uh, What I liked about what you said, Al, about bringing a competitive uh, spirit to the game of golf there you can make yourself be competitive you don't and that whether that's the a flight or the c flight you you can learn that it's a you it's something you can find you don't need to be born with i mean i think sometimes higher handicap golfers think oh well it's luck hey if i could hit a ball like you life would be great well no it wouldn't because we have the same struggles as everybody does there's no, there's no more fun for me than competing in golf and going, going after a goal. But it's not the attainment of the goal; it's going after the goal. That's, sure. that's the fun part for me, and that's why I'll stay with golf forever. Because I know my tennis, my tennis performance would go a steep down, uh, down the graph. But my golf, I feel like I can still get better, and that's the beauty of it. Well, and the wonderful thing about the game, and, and I mean, just to, to finish this is, and I try and explain this to my buddy Fred and other guys who don't play like we do. Because Fred's point to me the other day was, how can you play this every day? How can you work on your game every day? I go, because every day is different. Every shot you hit is different. But the one thing about golf versus other sports, whether it's tennis or, is that, you know, Al at whatever your handicap is and me and Gordon and all these guys we talk about, it's the only game where all of us could play together and be competitive because of handicaps. And, and, and have a great time together. But we could never, no matter how good a tennis player I became, I couldn't give you a good game. There's no handicapping unless you played, you know, with your feet. Um, all right, Timmy. Uh, Tim O'Connor is the uh, performance golf coach. You can uh, use his uh, services. He encourages it. O'ConnorGolf.ca. 
Um, we'll uh, be back uh, next week. Tim and I are playing in a uh, pretty cool charity event. We'll tell you about it. It's the... Uh, what is the actual name of it? Soldiers. Soldier on to St. Andrews. It's to increase awareness uh, among the population, among uh, veterans, particularly ill and injured veterans who've done tours of duty and whatnot, and just getting them out, uh, engaging with other veterans, other people, uh, you know, in all kinds of activities. This one's focused on uh, on golf. And uh, so we're uh, treated to a fantastic day at uh, Beacon Hall Golf Club. And uh, some of those, uh, I think four of the guys will be selected to go on a trip of a lifetime to play some of the greatest golf courses in Scotland and watch the Open Championship. So, uh, yeah, Howard, really looking forward to uh, hanging with you at this tournament. Uh, I'm told it's uh, a very um, uh, moving day, very inspirational uh, you know, great golf, obviously, but to hear what these uh, amazing veterans have gone through, it, it'll really be something. All right, man, and of course, as always, thanks to uh, TaylorMade Golf and Adidas. Uh, make sure I, I, you know, like, and I, we're not just saying that. You, you will not. If, if you've ever wondered what it's like to get more distance out of a driver, check this out. Also, thanks to Glenn Karen. There's never been a, time, a better time to join Glenn Karen, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> Take care.